This is a Federal News Network podcast. A leading academic program concerned with federal acquisition has become something of an advisor to the government, to the Defense Department in particular. The Center for Government Contracting, part of George Mason University's business school, has won a contract. It will help the Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering review the contracting activities of DARPA and of the defense laboratories. Here with details, Center Executive Director Jerry McGinn. Jerry, good to have you back. Great to be back with you, Tom. So you have won a contract. It's not huge. It's less than a million dollars, but it's unusual for an academic situation to go in and advise like this, at least in my experience, what will you be doing for the Defense Department? Well, this came was directed by Congress in the FY2020 National Defense Authorization Act. They asked for a university, a business school or law school to do this work. So the Department of Defense did the contracting activity and we were fortunate to be selected. We have in our business school, as you say, we have a lot of expertise in intellectual property. Our senior fellow, Jim Hasek, who's leading this, the principal investigator for this study, has written a number of papers on this. And our law school has two programs, the Center for Protection of Intellectual Property, as well as the the National Security Institute that's worked, and we partnered with them on this, and we're really excited about this project. Yeah, so the unique part of acquisition by DARPA and the defense laboratories is they're not buying the typical things that DOD buys. They are buying, essentially, intellectual property. Right. So this has been a big move within a department, actually. Um, there have been a number of efforts in the last several years to rethink how Department of Defense does acquisition intellectual property uh, policy. They've got new instruction out, and this is part of that piece of, you know, how can Department of Defense do better and partner with industry so it's less of a all-or-nothing kind of approach for intellectual property. That is to say either the government buys up what it is and keeps it, and there's not that much incentive for the intellectual property generator or the government can't get the most out of it because it has no rights to the intellectual property on the two extremes. So they're trying to steer between those two extremes? Exactly. It's it's getting that balance right. And I think government needs to get better as a consumer or as a purchaser of intellectual property. And industry also has to come meet in the middle to some degree through licensing rights or figuring out a model to do it. And I think you're seeing that in this study and a lot of activities going on between department ministry. Uh, there's a real effort to do that. And how does this fall? under research and engineering, say, instead of the industrial base policy. Because this study itself is focusing on DARPA and the defense labs. So and that is very much a, kind of a research and engineering kind of a, that they're responsible for those. And it's in the office of laboratories that, that, that this project is being managed by. So it makes a lot of sense. But as you say, this is not just an R&E problem. It's, it's across the department. Now, earlier you spent a good three-year stint in the defense department. Mm-hmm. Are people from DARPA and the labs saying, Jerry, Stay out of here. Don't upset the apple cart. Well, they haven't yet. You know, they, they've uh, given us the order does the work and we're, we're off it. And we're actually been partnering with, there's an IP cadre that's been stood up in the Department of Defense led by an Acuras, yes, Richard Gray. And they're partnering with industry on this and with academia to try and find solutions. And I think there's a real opportunity for the new incoming uh, Undersecretary for Acquisition and Sustainment to really drive this kind of issue. And hopefully there'll be one nominated soon for that role. We're speaking with Jerry McGinn, executive director of the Center for Government Contracting, part of George Mason University's business school. And under the contract, what specific activities will your folks be doing? 
Yeah, we'll be doing a major kind of review of all the practices of the existing defense labs and DARPA with regard to intellectual property and technology transfer. And so we're gathering data from that in a lot of interviews. It's a short-term response. The department has to get back to Congress by the late spring. So we're excited to be doing this, and we're excited to be partnering with the Department of Defense on this. Yeah, in Washington terms, late spring is a sprint from now. Yeah, it is. It is. And we're fortunate we're kind of sprinting right now through this effort, and we're making very good progress. And will you be also talking to the contractors or the grantees, the people that generate the intellectual property? I think this is focusing on the practices of the laboratories and DARPA itself. So it's looking at commonality, trying to identify best practices to make recommendations to the Undersecretary of Research and Engineering as to what can the department do, what's the best practices going forward. And it's up for them to make that decision based on the the results that we report and uh, potential recommendations. And of course, there's a lot of intellectual property acquisition that happens on the civilian side of government. Will that be a point of reference also for you to, to compare and contrast? Not in this specific effort. Well, there is where looking at basic academic, basic practice on intellectual property that's going to inform the lit review for this study. But there's definite activities that need to be happening across the government looking at this area because the way the technology is going and the, how it impacts government activities, this balance of intellectual property of, between government and industry is, is going to grow in coming years, not going to go away. Does this have to do in some sense or in some part with the need for a new strategic offset? I think that you're hitting on the right point, Tom. There's been, if you go back and look at in the Cold War, you know, GPS and these kind of technologies came from defense investments. So defense as a percentage of R&D overall in the United States is much less. So you're seeing much more commercial technology, you know, hypersonics, artificial intelligence, machine learning, autonomy, robotics. A lot of that's commercial now, but it's also has defense applications. So the Department of Defense is actually going to the commercial companies to look to bring this technology in. And there's been actually a decrease in some of the new entrants in the last couple of years. So we were trying to get the balance right as to the incentives for companies and intellectual property is a part of that. They want to be able to keep their technology, their know-how that allows them to grow, but also the department needs some kind of ability to maintain and adapt systems as they need. So it's getting that balance right. And that's been a big focus of a lot of acquisition reform. And that's a big difference in some sense from the Cold War. Say, if you were buying stealth technology that was bought with the understanding on both sides, this is exclusively for the Defense Department. Right. Because, you know, well, I don't know why anyone would want a stealth airliner if you want to be safely landing under radar. But the point is, a lot of those technologies were proscribed from sale to the private sector, let alone around the world. In this case, it seems like the Defense Department has reversed that Mm -hmm. idea where they want to be a user of the IP, but let it be also available from the creator for other uses in the commercial area. That's correct. You're seeing these, you know, there's a lot of heavily commercial areas like robotics and I mean, even some of the pieces of, of defense equipment, such as microelectronics or rare earth elements. These are critical for defense systems, but, you know, the Department of Defense is like 1% of the market in some of these materials. And then in the commercial areas, it's the same set of dynamics. So you've got to find a balance so you can incentivize companies to come in so you have the, the latest tech you can. You have to have the adapted acquisition systems to be able to upgrade those and so on. And you have to have intellectual property practices that also enable you to get what you need, but not get more than what you need. So it's really kind of helping the department or the government in general become a better consumer of intellectual property. Because you don't want to, if they buy everything, then what you you mentioned earlier, you disincentivize companies or you only get in certain companies. Whereas if you find kind of mutually agreeable solutions through licensing rights or something and find the place to do that in the system is really critical 
critical. And that, that's a lot of discussions we're going on now. And this study that we're doing is, is a piece of that kind of puzzle to really kind of help the department and the government improve how it, it does these practices and keeps the industrial base dynamic and serving commercial and sure. um, defense companies. And then the flip side, and we'll conclude here, is that you also don't want the same technology sold and used in the same way to the, I don't know, Venezuelan Air Force or whatever the case might be, people that are not friendly to the United States, you don't want them to buy the same thing and develop the same capability because then there's no offset. So it's a fine-grained kind of pathway they have to thread there, isn't it? There is. I mean, because, yeah, there's the whole issue of microelectronics and different technologies that are made in China or other unfriendly places. So how do you balance that? It's not quite a struggle, but it's a challenge. And, and it's something that the Department of Defense has to do business with companies that are willing just to do business, you know, c- can stay out of that realm because security is a big part of this, you know, with the cybersecurity and all. You've got to build these systems and you got to have them protected. Small contract, big implications. <laughs> well, we'd like to think so. All right. Jerry McGinn is executive director of the Center for Government Contracting, part of George Mason University's business school. Thanks so much for joining me in studio. Great to be here. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the President and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life and um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style and how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, 
situations changed and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I, We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual. And that they cared about me and I could tell that they cared about me and they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career. But really, it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes, when I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they gonna say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters 
um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is, is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally and, agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler, and to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast. We'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, Think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.